Have you ever ignored a, de- a detour sign on the road? <laughs> Have you ever been foolish enough to ignore a detour sign? You know, once in a while it pays off and you can actually get to the location you're going to through a back route, but oftentimes the detour sign's there for a reason, and um, you end up backtracking right back to where you were and wasting your time if you go past it. That's kind of what today's passage in Abram is like. Today's passage in Genesis, rather, about Abram is like. We ended our um, sermon last week with Abram journeying forward in faith, touring the promised land after God had told him, go, go, from the land of Ur and then Haran, and go to this land that I have promised you. He uproots his entire family, including his nephew Lot and his family, and Abram departs to the promised land. And in last week's passage, we remember God promising Abram a few things in Genesis 12, that he would be the father of a great nation, that he would have God's blessing or favor upon him, that he would have great fame, importance, and might, and that he would be a blessing not just to his people, but to all the family of nations. And as Abram traveled through the country, he built these monuments to God, recall, these bold proclamations that this territory was claimed for God, by God, through him. God visibly appears to Abram in chapter 12, verse 7, and guarantees this territory will be his offspring, for his offspring. So now, that's a recap of last week. Take a step back and see what's going on in the larger picture of salvation here. That God has been faithful to his promise to continue this line, this lineage, all the way from Adam and Eve down through Shem and Seth and Noah, through Eber, from which we get the name Hebrews, by the way, and finally to Terah and Abram. Abram. God is actively dealing with two threats to salvation, right? Again, we're looking at the big picture here. The threat of the pollution of the line by pagan worship, the line that's going to come to bring about Christ. And secondly, Sarah's barren, Sarai at this time's barrenness, her inability to continue the line. Those are the two threats. And so today, we see Abram, who yesterday, last week, was a great man of faith, falter. He falters in his faith. He stumbles. Rather than relying on God, he relies on two things. First of all, he relies upon his own wealth. And second of all, he relies upon his own cunning. And so we're going to look at that today. Open with me to Genesis chapter 12. It's in your bulletin, or you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And follow along as we pick up with Abram on his journey, on his detour this morning. 
we're starting. Instead, we're starting with verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12. Now there was famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. I'll stop right there first. Here we have a man who just visibly spoke with God back in verse 7, who's been taken through the promised land through many threats. And what the heck is going on? A famine comes up, and he abandons the plan. Look at your map on the next page after that reading. It's, it's on page uh, 3 in your bulletin. Or if you have a Bible with you, you can look at a map in that Bible of the Holy Land in Egypt. And you'll see in the map in the bulletin, at least, is marked Shechem and Hebron. And you see Egypt in the far lower left corner with a little green around it. If you look at the scale on the map, you'll see that Egypt is about one and three quarters inches away, which translates to about 200 miles. So that's the trek. That's the trek that Abram takes his family on to Egypt. Now notice it's nothing compared to the trek that it goes from Ur all the way up to Haran and then back through the Holy Land. That's much more. And yet, it's not small potatoes, right? This is not a weekend trip. This is a great endeavor. But the story continues. Why does he do this? Because there's a famine. And because he's afraid of not having enough to eat, for not only for him, but for his household, for his animals. Let's continue on. Verse 11. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, what's interesting here is that Abram sees this problem, and notice as the story progresses, he's not wrong. What happens? They do find Sarai very beautiful, which is interesting because Sarai is about middle-aged at this point. Right? She's 65 by most scholarly estimation. Abram was 75 at the beginning of his journey when he left Haran. And also keep in mind that they're living a lot longer now. And so she dies when she's 127 years old. So 65 is right about 40 in our modern, by our modern chronology of how long we live. She's about 40 in, in, um, in age. And yet they do think that she's good looking, don't they? And not just the servants, but the princes and Pharaoh himself. Look at verse 15. 
And when prince, the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he, that is Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. This sounds good on the face of it in one way. Abram is making out. He's getting great riches from Pharaoh. But what's the problem? He's lost his wife. He's lost his wife. It's not good. In fact, this is a very bad situation. Abram, in his own cunning, had taken everything into account but Pharaoh. But Pharaoh, how did this mess happen? How are they now entangled in Egypt? Well, there's an old funny saying that you see from time to time on signs and sometimes on social media, and it goes like this. Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is you're stupid and make bad decisions. That's the case here, friends. Whether stupidity or desperation or fear, Abram has made a series of bad decisions. And he's taken a very unnecessary detour. Let's back up. Back to the beginning of the reading again. And look at what's going on in light of what he should have done. So there's a famine in the land, a great and real threat. We shouldn't say that it's not. There's ample evidence, in fact, that often this happened in the Holy Land. And what would happen is that those in the Holy Land would go to Egypt. And even our map gives us a little bit of a hint as to why. The Nile Delta, right, the, the end of the river there, is always well watered. And so the Egyptians almost always have food, even in the midst of famine. And so it was very common for people to travel and purchase food from the Egyptians. In fact, there's some, uh, there's some sayings that survive in archaeology that, that testify to this, that people will come to Egypt for this. And it was a perfectly reasonable thing, notice, for Abram to go to Egypt. He's solving a problem. No food? No problem. He's a wealthy man. He can pick up his folk and travel that 200 miles, buy food, problem solved. But what's the issue here? The issue is that Abram who has thus far relied entirely on God, fails to ask God what he should do. He fails to ask God what he should do. He falters in his reliance upon God and does what? He trusts in his own wealth instead, rather than the source of it. You see, God has promised him blessings, power, protection, land, great wealth and fame. Earlier, just this chapter... And he boldly raises these altars in order to give God glory for these promises. And yet here, he takes matters into his own hands. Doesn't even consult God in this life and death situation. Doesn't even ask for help. He's got it under control. What's worse, 
he seems also to lose faith in God's promise. And what you might not know, looking at this text for the first reading over, is that there's a hint here in the Hebrew. And it's in the word sojourn in verse 10. It's translated sojourn. It's actually the Hebrew word gur, which is translated in the Septuagint parakeo. Parakeo. And it doesn't mean just to visit. It means to dwell. To dwell. And so Abram goes down and intends to dwell in the land of Egypt, as commentator Gordon Wenham confirms. It's surprising that he's so fast to abandon the plan of God. That's the worst reading of this. Either way, Abram has made this choice when facing death and famine. He's chosen wealth over God. We have echoes of this in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, our gospel reading for today. I invite you to look with me at Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and then verses 21 through 23. We read, And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Now skip over to 21 through 23. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This gospel passage, short, is not condemning wealth. It's condemning the love of money. And Jesus is stating the fact plainly that it's much easier for those of some means to rely on themselves and not be able to part with their wealth for the sake of the kingdom of God. To choose to rely on wealth rather than to choose to rely on God's provision. That's the main point of the gospel. But if you understand the logic of it, it's very foolish because God is the author of all wealth. And God can dispense whatever he will. And so if you're following God, you will have the wealth for what you need. But we stupid human beings so often choose what's visibly in front of us or tangibly in our pockets rather than God. That's the first point here. And the second is that Abram doesn't merely trust in his wealth instead of God. He trusts in his own cunning, his own prowess. Rather than trusting in God to protect him, he creates a scheme built upon deception and half-truth. Proverbs 24, 8 and 9 says, Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer, and the devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. That's Proverbs 24, 8 
and 9. Abram's plan to pass off his wife, Sarai, as his sister and not his wife. It's a half-truth. She is his half-sister. He pulls her into his scheme, and his scheme isn't a new development. He's been planning this from the get-go since he left Haran. If you've read ahead, you know that in chapter 20, Abram actually does this again. And when he's confronted, he says to Abimelech the king in verse 13, And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, that is Sarai, This is how you can show me love. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So now we see he schemes, and he puts his scheme into action for the first time as he enters into Egypt and drags Sarai with him along into it. And we might ask as moderns, why is this a good idea? Why would it be good for her to claim that he, Abram, is her brother? Well, Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna explains that at the time of this writing, there was the principle of fratriarchy after patriarchy. And that is that in the absence of a father or husband, a woman's legal guardian was her brother. And so he was following the custom of the time. Abram had the authority over Sarai as her brother and therefore could arrange marriage for her. And so this situation was supposed to give him leverage to negotiate. He's leveraging his wife as his sister to negotiate with people as a way of buying time to escape. The setup would provide Abram with protection As her brother, people wouldn't kill him right off, which is what he states in today's passage, and take her as as his wife. But it also gives him the ability to have this great asset in his wife. But Abraham considered all the other outcomes but Pharaoh. For in almost every other scenario, his cunning would have paid off. He would have made negotiation and then they would have broken off the engagement and he and Sarai would have gone their way. It was a stalling tactic, but it didn't work with Pharaoh. It didn't work with Pharaoh. On this Father's Day, we see Abram as a faithless father and faithless husband. We see the opposite of what A father should do. A father is supposed to provide for and protect his wife and family, even at costs to himself. But Abram puts himself first, asking Sarai to do this so that it might go well with him, as he says. He imperils his wife and his potential children with the thought of saving his own skin. Look at verses 17 through 20 back in Genesis The Lord steps in, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, 
What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's quite ironic, actually, that here in this story, the moral man is Pharaoh and the immoral one, Abram. Pharaoh's moral compass is quite intact, though perhaps it's motivated a little by this plague that God sends. And he's disgusted with Abram, disgusted with his deception, disgusted that he'd pass his wife over, his wife off as a sister, and that Pharaoh would commit adultery with her. Pharaoh's the upright man here. And God uses this not just to teach or to try to teach Abram, but to save him. St. Chrysostom, the great preacher in the ancient church, makes the point in his commentary that even in this, God's grace protects Abram and blesses him. For it wouldn't have been out of line for Pharaoh just to kill Abram at this point, take his wife into his harem as he initially planned, and move on. But for God's plague, God makes it clear that this is immoral and not his will. It also would have been within Pharaoh's rights just to confiscate everything that Abram had and say, see ya, to him and his household and kick him out of Egypt as an exile. Pharaoh doesn't do that either. Notice he sends him forth with all of the riches. And so despite Abram's faithlessness, despite his stumbling and falling, here we see God's faithfulness in his blessing anyway. And sadly, as I've referenced earlier, this isn't the last time Abram does this. So he doesn't learn. What does this have to say to the church today? To you and I? Well, first of all, we see that God's promise is unshakable. That God's covenants are based on his faithfulness and not on our own. Once again, we're given the assurance as the church that in this story, as in all, God is working out things for his glory and for the good of his people. As Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against his New Testament chosen people, the church. Equally important is that foolish men and women within the church will not deter God's plan, which should be equally comforting for those that have been part of the church for any amount of time. We know that there's no shortage of foolish and wicked men and women within the church. This should be encouraging to us when we're faced with those situations. That God's blessings for his people are fixed and not dependent upon us. They're in his grace, not on our merit. Alan Ross, a scholar that I read preparing for today's sermon, says it this way. He says, Israel would learn that even when they were unfaithful, there were aspects of the promise of God that were not relinquished through their failure. And so much more it is for us today. God's grace is amazing and saves and salvages the church out of the worst situations. Just look at the history 
He also makes the promise to you and me as her sons and daughters that he will present us unblemished and unstained before God. In his epistle outlining the duties of husbands to their wives in Ephesians chapter 5, this promise is given. This is chapter 5, verses 25 through 27 of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. God, or husbands, he says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And so that's God's promise to us as the church. God brought Abram and Sarai through their famine, through their trial, through his scheme, and out of it, back to the Holy Land. Remember that. Hold on to that. That's our story too. Secondly, we are to rely on God. We are to rely on God. It's so easy to say and so hard to do, particularly when we face dire situations. We're called as individuals, however, to rely on God first, to consult him even when we have, quote-unquote, things under control or in hand. Jesus says that it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And you and I, friends, are all, we're all rich by world standards. We might be in different levels here in the United States, but we are all rich. We all have many options before us every day that we don't even think about. You are rich and powerful. You have the options to do many things that others around the world do not. And so how hard it is for us to seek first the kingdom of God and not rely upon our wealth or our cunning. In the Jude passage, the apostle admonishes us to seek first God's kingdom and gives us a way to do it. Look very quickly with me at Jude, verse 20. It was our second lesson. We'll just look at verse 20. The apostle writes, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So break that apart. What's he saying? Build yourself up. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. How do you do that? How do you do that? To know more? To ask for more faith? To be closer to Jesus in your daily walk? Look at what follows it. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? To truly put into practice that prayer without ceasing so that you can grow up in the holy faith. 
And verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Well, that, what's that mean? That means to keep yourself as much as you can in his blessing by acknowledging his love. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Notice, this might be the most important one for the earlier passages today. Waiting upon the Lord. Waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to lead. Waiting for him to guide, to teach us his way. These are all the things that we can do. And yet, we know that as we do these things, it is not up to us to remain faithful. While we are to be obedient, we cannot remain faithful without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, look down at the next part. And have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Well, this is the idea that we have to share the faith with others, to provide others with what we know. And finally, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What's St. Paul saying, or the, the Apostle, rather, saying here? It's not just a doxology, but it's a statement of faith. Who is able to keep you from stumbling? The Lord. Who's able to keep you from becoming faithless? The Lord. To him be all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority throughout all time. And so, friends, it's important to keep that in mind as we journey forth in our own faith. And I commend to you the questions starting on page 4 and 5 to help you apply this to your own life. Think about times when you relied on your own strength or wealth or cunning rather than on God. How did it go? What happened? How did God deliver you out of it? In what ways do you struggle with trusting God? What patterns of stumbling in faith do you continually find yourself falling into? Why? And ask the Holy Spirit to assist you because he sees your weakness. He you can't hide it from him anyway. Just tell him. Tell him your weakness, your fears of stumbling. And let him provide the grace to you to overcome them. He'll never forsake you. He'll never toss you away. Abram is proof of that. And he has made his promise to us of it in the New Testament. Friends, avoid the detour. Why take the detour when you don't need to? Seek the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.